is a good question because I don't talk about this. You know, and this is the first time I've probably spoken about these aspects of rugby for a long time and whether I don't talk about it for a reason or it doesn't just really come up in my life. But yeah, it was it was definitely a difficult point and looking back at it now and the events of that, you know, definitely contributed to different things. That was Ollie Frost, our guest for today. Welcome back to another episode of Chapters, the podcast that explores the journeys of athletes beyond the playing field. I'm your host, Craig Walsh, and today we're speaking with Ollie Frost, a former professional rugby player who's transitioned into the field of holistic wellness. From the early years of playing in Hereford to the intense world of professional rugby, Ollie shares the highs, lows, and pivotal moments that defined his journey. Ollie's experiences shed light on the sometimes toxic situations that athletes face in high performance environments and the impact on mental and physical well-being. We also discuss his experience of career transition and how he navigated the shift from structured performance metrics to a more intuitive and creative space. A huge thank you to Ollie for openly and honestly sharing the personal experiences he went through. It really was a pleasure to spend time talking with him. So here we go. Here is my conversation with Ollie Frost. You're a former professional rugby player. Yeah. Where did that start? When did you become uh, interested in rugby? Was there a was it on TV? Was it your family saying, "Oh, we're going to take you to rugby on a Sunday," or was it school? My dad played rugby growing up and I think I nagged him for a while and I said oh can you take me down to Hereford Rugby Club and he finally gave in and took me down to the club and then I'm not sure at the time but he was a bit reluctant but in the end it turned out that he had ended up coaching me from the age of six until 13 so I played and I just played rugby then six until probably well yeah when I retired 27 28 so large portion of my life was based around rugby and yeah so that was the kind of journey from playing playing in Hereford at quite a local level and then just progressing through into more serious rugby and competitive rugby and um, I was quite fortunate at the time because I played in, a, in in the wrong age group so I played in the I was I was playing in a year above basically for most of my life until I was fourteen. So I was always quite used to playing to get people who are bigger than me and slightly more physically developed. And I think that really helps, especially as as I got older. It, that wasn't by that was just a coincidence. It wasn't meant to happen. Really, it just it just happened. Was there any moments on TV that you saw rugby and thought as well? That's what I want to go to. You know, you saying your dad decided to take you. Was it just because he was playing? And coaching or did you also want to did you see it on tv like the five nations six nations stuff like that i was watching loads of rugby growing up i was obsessed with rugby you know and i think i got a... just rugby or other sport as well i did lots of dance theater which was kind of coincide with rugby but rugby really was my primary focus i think when i was around 12 my school teacher who was very influential for me said to my parents right or wrongly that you know ollie's can play for england that's what that's what he said and then i think that seed drop with them created this kind of expectation from me from a younger age and and i'll speak to that how how that plays out as an adult but that so the kind of early expectation on my uh, ability to perform was quite high so from age 12 i was kind of pigeonholed into this space of you've got a, a lot of potential 
let's try and maximize your potential. And my school teacher was incredible and he he taught me how to be disciplined from such a young age. So practice for me wasn't difficult because I could practice my skills and my physical skills relentlessly. So, and that um, exposure to that from such a young age, then I, I guess built the foundations for what proceeds into professional rugby because I was able to, um, I guess for so many years, I was so used to being in, in that mode of high performance and output essentially but did you ever feel a little kind of stress from that at that young age or was it still fun was it still playing right back then it's a good question the stress didn't really begin until i was 16 and i played for england school boys and then it got serious and then it felt like you've got people watching you you're being judged so i was going to mm -hmm. county trials north midlands midlands england trials and that changed the dynamic. So then I was exposed to other players from other cities who were linked to big clubs at 16. I was all a bit new to me at that point. I was from Hereford. It was quite a small place. And I was thrown into this bit of a deep end, really. And then, and then I became attached to Worcester Warriors. And that was my kind of start and insight into, into professional rugby. So from 16... It was England schoolboys, 18s, 20s. And then at school, I was at Bronzegrove School to do my A-levels. I was attached to Worcester Academy. So I would go there in the week outside of school and I would be exposed to the academy training process and then proceeded into the first team. So when I left Bronzegrove, I had a first team contract at 18. So the, it was quite a, it was quite a, it was quite a really fast point in my life. But, and then but the, the rugby and the enjoyment changed drastically as soon as I started playing more high level rugby because what I what I envisioned for professional sport was completely the not the opposite but it was extreme. It, it was an extreme version and a lot of my I believe a lot of my innate kind of unique pro um, qualities were repressed in an environment which was driven around performance and metrics and also molding you into a certain type of player and that was through a subjective lens of a coach or your team environment so I lost I believe largely a lot of my what made me really excel and stand out was quite an individual process so can you just go into that a little bit more? that's interesting so are you saying that you you had certain traits that maybe were muted a little bit and you do you feel you had to do that to almost get picked or to go along with with the flow of everyone else Definitely, and I'll I'll talk to flow as a concept, hopefully, in this podcast. And when I was younger, I was in flow, so time disappeared. I was completely present. I was at my utmost, so I, I was really being able to dictate my environment internally and externally. When I became involved in more professional settings, it felt like the the structure which was imposed at that age was too rigid, and kind of like western approach to everything we do is very part driven so it's very much around be a super specialist in your position so for me to scrum half it was doing my uh, basic uh, skills to the best of my ability but then that kind of leaves out a lot of the intuition and a lot of like the freedom of movement the creativity of being a scrum half exactly exactly and then the physical the physical training reflected that so i went from school 
where I was doing weights, but I was really doing gymnastics and movement and rowing and swimming and running and jumping. I was doing lots of different things, parkour, breakdancing, everything. And then moved into a more professional environment and then I found the gym. But it wasn't a gym like I'd found it. It was a very overly conditioned sense of trying to change the physical makeup. And it was very much around heavy lifting metrics. It's like a, spread, a spreadsheet version. Just this is what you're going to do every day. Is it that kind of thing? Yeah, that's it. Like you would be in a pod or you'd be one-to-one with um, someone in the club who would take you around the gym space and they would go through all your exercises and, and they would like a teacher they would mark down your mm. your weights and then the idea is that you would improve that so then i was introduced to huge amounts of food um from such a young age and my size was always up for a discussion so t- so coaches and teachers would say i was slightly too small but they had no idea around the natural development of humans because we don't develop food until we're 25 so they're making mm their opinions at me at 15 saying I was too small so what happened then I went into a phase of protein shakes religiously loads of consumption of food loads of weight training and then that played havoc on my ability to move and be in space so my my dexterity as a as a human but also as a rugby player diminished greatly and and my dad is he will still talk about to this day that how he feels like that the gym culture ruined ruined is quite a strong word but ruined my um my my freedom of play and my my ability to move because i'm much heavier so i was 10 kilos heavier i'm probably 82 probably 82 kilos now i was 90 around there so i was i was fluctuating between this point i had a bad injury for about a year and they just threw me in the gym you know they threw me in the gym so much and and i was quite a i could put on muscle mass quite easily so i would bulk out but i was slow yeah it's not helping you as a scrum half is it as a scrum half you need to be agile you need to be snipey completely and unfortunately like any business model it's around results so that was something which was quite tough for me to kind of take because i am quite a, a sensitive person and i do pick up on lots of different things in my environment and they they kind of mold you into what they think is best for you not having like an open conversation with you or you know to really talk about your needs properly it's kind of like okay we feel like you need to be here so then this is your this is your process and and that's it really and it's kind of molded and you're not given that freedom and if you look at other cultures in rugby for example like so New Zealand when they're younger they'll play schoolboy rugby but they'll play in weight divisions so they won't play in age divisions so they'll play against players who might be older or younger than them but they're in the same weight category so what that does is it it encourages skill development and creativity and flow and all these other good things and it's also maybe not harming them mentally or you know emotionally that they're up against they're they're constantly at this battle to oh well do i need to get bigger because that guy is my age but he is six foot three or this weight and he's getting in the team could that be a factor as well yeah, and I think at schoolboy rugby, especially when you're younger, the person with the more physical prowess is usually dominates, and that gets removed in New Zealand because you're playing for skill versus playing for dominance and power because we all develop at different rates, especially as males. And it's kind of, 
it encourages a different type of game. And ever, ever since then, you know, we as a country and other European countries have done the same. They've tried to emulate the Kiwi template of rugby, which is more free-flowing. The ball stays in play for longer. They're fitter, they're agile, they're more dexterous. And we've, we have we, we have moved away from that era. But when I started playing rugby, we moved from the amateur era into, profession, into the professional game, not not for very long. So a lot of the amateur ethics and cultural cultural identities were already existing and they took a long time to, to reshape, even though they were getting paid to play. Did you recognise that at the time that you were not enjoying things or is it now looking in retrospect, looking back and thinking this isn't, you know, what's happening here is not as what I, what I thought it was going to be? It's a good question because I don't talk about this, you know, and this is the first time I've probably spoken about these aspects of rugby for a long time and whether I don't talk about it for a reason or it doesn't just really come up in my life but the um yeah it was it was definitely a difficult point and looking back at it now and the events of that you know definitely contributed to different things which you know I was kind of planning to talk about was around why I left rugby because I left rugby I didn't really know why I left rugby at that time because I knew I was quite unsatisfied and I was I was unfulfilled but the what was going on underneath, what what was showing up in my body was a direct result and influence of that of having these kind of traumatic experiences of either almost abandonment, rejection, not being seen, not being heard, being in unpsychologically safe environments for a long time. Then how does that show up in my physiology? And that, and that was through sleep disruption digestive problems, fluctuation weight gain, mental irritability. And these are all signs that your body is dysregulated and you're not processing stress, inflammation, and trauma, which are natural cycles for the human design. And I wasn't able to regulate myself. So I didn't know how to regulate myself because, again, moving from the amateur game into the, into the professional era, mindfulness and meditation and breath work were not on anyone's radar. So... Things like prehab and yeah. Pilates were like used occasionally, but they weren't used to the degree, or there was there was a lack of awareness around the stress response, the output, the physical output, which is imparted on you as a rugby player at the professional level, and what does that do to your mental balance and also your physical health? Do you think there were other players as well going through this and maybe stayed quiet? of how they were, you know, reacting to the physical aspects of you're basically a child and they're trying to develop you into an adult's body as quickly as possible rather than buying a mm. player. They want to develop a player, yeah? Do you think there were other players as well going through this and you probably would have helped it would have helped everyone if other people discussed it? 100%. Create in a safe environment where you could have dialogue around your feelings and your thoughts and your emotions, you know, in a constructive way, which was beneficial to you as a player, to to you as part of a group. And there would be threads of commonality between that. And, you know, we're all human beings. And if you put anyone in that environment, which is very high stress, which is really around physical combat, where the nervous system is preparing or or perceiving action, all the time and it's not just you're getting an email through your inbox which might trigger you uh, you're having to 
physically protect yourself on on a, on a, on a daily basis, whether that's in the training field or you're having to exert huge amounts of pressure physically into different areas. And these are all abnormal conditions. Again, like we weren't designed, if you, mm. if you go back to our primitive past, we, mm. we would have never been exposed to this amount of high level stress ever. So you're loading a system which is not used to be loading that much. And then you've got no awareness of restoration. So there's no relaxation process. There's no balance process. So all you're doing really is driving people and athletes and players into a race sympathetic response, which is basically fight, fight or flee. And it's driven day in, day out. Because it's and it, and it, and it's a performance-based business. So the business needs to make money. And if that's at the expense of people's mental health and physical health, then that's where I was at that time. Hopefully it's moved on since... And, and I see threads of ex-players who I played with. So Callum Clark, for example. So Saracens, I see he's doing some high-performance psychology work at Saracens at the moment. So there, there is... We're moving into a, a new era, but it's a very slow change. You know, I think it will be a slow change. So you re- retired at 27, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So, which is quite a young age for a rugby player. What did you start doing as soon as you just made that decision? Was it, okay, so I just have some time to reflect or was it, I need to just start on something? Fortunately, throughout rugby, I've always kept my hand into education. So when I was 18, I did my personal training course. I did Open University. I studied rehab. So I was really interested in the body and the mechanics of the body. So throughout rugby, even from 18, I was coaching either men's rugby or I was doing one-to-one coaching. So it felt like a natural progression. So when actually my last year of professional rugby or the years before that, I was doing something on this. I was working actually outside of the training field. So I would leave the ground and I would go and do some one-to-one sessions. So that was like a spark in my interest. And then I left the rugby and then I moved into a physio environment in Clapham called Balanced Physiotherapy. And then that was the kind of start point of me understanding more around recovery, rehab, injury processes on the more physical level. And then I just got really passionate around the body. And then also in my own personal experience, my own self-inquiry around regulation and my nervous system and wanting to return to Ollie previous professional rugby, which is less around metrics and results and high impact and weight training to move back into movement training, into gymnastics, creativity as well, into creativity and lots of creative exercises. And that was a catalyst really. Um, And then I met an osteopath and a functional medicine practitioner who completely blew my mind into the whole stratosphere of health because only up until that point I was aware of the physical aspect of the body and then developing a more clear understanding of the emotional side and how the mind and body are connected. That was the turning point into me understanding or beginning to understand the holistic nature of human beings but also my own symptoms that I've experienced through rugby as I touched on with the disruptions in my own biology that it become it became a platform for me to self-investigate essentially find out what's happening in your body affects your mind and vice versa and 
are there ways, tools and frameworks that you can implement to to find some more capacity and space within that. So then my teaching techniques began to evolve into helping people not just on the physical level, but giving them different practices and insights into how to really feel and think and interpret in a slightly different way. So that was the catalyst, I think, was the kind of um, insight into the mind-body connection. We hear this a lot, and it's almost like a grieving process when they finish their athletic career. Was that for you, or was it just, no, now is the right time for me to retire and I want to go and go on to something else? I think it felt like the right time. It, It probably felt like the right time for a long time, and I had a very frustrating experience with Bethesda Rugby as a general statement because my performance and my input was so in flux that I would be consistently in favour, out of favour, injured, on loan, in the first team. This merry-go-round, all driven by subjective opinion or the club I was in would be under pressure so they would have to make decisions that they wouldn't want to usually make. So this constant unease and uncertainty, I was basically had enough for a long time. And it, and you get to a point where it doesn't matter how hard you train, how well you show up as a, as a professional athlete and human being, you still might not get picked. And that mentally is really difficult because you're really struggling on that Ferris wheel of like, well, what do I need to really do to play the game I've always played my whole life? And that's what's mm. sad about it because I've loved rugby and I still do watch rugby, but the the enjoyment left me drastically from like seventeen, eighteen years old, and it, and it just never came back. And it was really and it is really sad. So I felt really ready and I felt ready to leave that environment. And there was opportunities to continue a slightly lower league club, and money in rugby is not great unless you're. In England is national or you've played 100 plus premiership games so it's you're really in quite a narrow field and it's really difficult to even get those yeah. spots because everyone still wants to be a professional rugby player and I think yeah I don't think it's that well-rounded and I think a lot of players do leave the game without skills without practical skills life skills that they can then transfer and I think along this whole process if there's more balance and awareness of that then you'd have a much more holistic athlete and player because all their focus wouldn't be on one thing and that's really not good for our physiology is to just have all our because all I thought about for 10 years was rugby like I thought my life would end if I didn't play rugby that's all I cared about you know I just so I got so obsessed with the sport but I couldn't zoom out I couldn't see from a different perspective so I was constantly in that environment and that, in the end, wasn't healthy for me physically, mentally, or spiritually. Yeah. And were you, you know, were you actually getting feedback from people, you know, coaches, or regarding this? That you're obviously going through frustration, and you know, you know, a coach has probably in a squad twenty five other players to deal with. But were you getting feedback, or was it feedback that? that you uh, might not think was true to just keep you 
keep you kind of in place or you know what I mean is it what were you actually getting any emotional feedback was it just the kind of data driven you need to do this better mm. I think for, for me there was Turn kind of two parts to it. So one, being very young, being in an environment which is very masculine, very dominating, toxic in parts, very difficult to speak. So you're suppressed as a 18 year old around 30 plus year olds who mm. like it's really difficult to speak up. So when you do say anything, you're either ridiculed or criticised sometimes, or have bands that come in your way so it's really difficult to actually speak banter and inverted yeah banter, yeah yeah banter nice friendly banter and on on the coaching level and you know this is a blanket statement to the coaches i've worked with but largely all of them are very emotionally unaware so their inability to really detect how you're feeling was diminished but also my inability to speak up and i'm not going to say i some and, and i would leave it a long time and, and, and i try and speak but it was difficult and I was young then I didn't have the tools to to speak like that like this and say how, to say how I felt so kind of just people pleased and which is something I've had to really work on is like speaking up when they're uncomfortable situations and that was the large part of my life that's what most players do you know you're sort of yes men and you know you keep, try, down. keep, you keep your head down and you put on this money face and everyone wants to be Mr. Positive but really deep down you're really peed off that like you haven't played on a Saturday you're frustrated and there's nowhere to vent that and so you're just suppressing everything all the time you're pushing all this emotion down and it manifests itself as discomfort whether that's physically or mentally so there's two parts of that you know if I might if I could go back to my younger self I'd say Ollie speak your truth say how you feel if, if that means you have to leave the rugby club and do something else that might be the best thing for you in that, if you're a coach, a mentor, and you're looking after young players specifically, you need to have an emotional awareness toolbox. Because if you don't, there's going to be no dialogue between the, this young athlete or young athletes and yourself. And you'll always have this disconnect of teaching a student. And that's when it kind of breaks down because you don't build rapport, you don't build connection. And, you know... And that's why my school teacher at school and my dad, to a large, large extent, were far better mentors for me than professional, quote unquote, world class coaches who have coached international teams but have no ability to talk to you on a very human level. Do you think your father and your school coach, I don't know what your father did as a career, but the teacher obviously has this holistic, potentially a holistic um, uh, way of teaching. And do you think that helped where it was? both emotional, the, how to speak to people, certain people, and also just to play the game as well, rather than maybe some of your coaches who are just, this is how it gets done. Definitely. And even 10 years ago, like mental health wasn't a thing. <laughs> like, you know, it wasn't something you'd really speak about. It was a sign of weakness and vulnerability. So there's no dialogue around it. No one understands. No one understood. Yeah. Like no, everyone's so we're so disconnected from um, from the mind and body and what's happening between those two fields. And and as a coach in that environment, you, know, you you they have a job, they have a premise, they also have a target on their back. They've got a short window in this contract. So emotionally supporting a young player is not on their high agenda. So. 
and that's in my opinion ludicrous because what happens is the club or any facility in my opinion is born from the grassroots level they're your kind of foundations they're the that that's the energy which is going to continue after your top players come and leave you so unless you develop that and you nurture that you're never gonna succeed fully so i've, I've never worked in that uh rugby environment and you've been you've stopped playing for a number of years maybe there is someone doing this hopefully there is someone doing this especially when young lads and girls when they go into from a, an academy team or a a younger team into the first team squad and they're 18 hopefully there is some kind of framework in place where is it kind of a, is it a child it's not you know maybe at the 18 but they're still mm. very very young that someone is there and someone understands that this this person needs to be looked after a little bit i mean hopefully that is in place and if not maybe that's something that could be looked at 100 percent you know, some sort of welfare officer or well-being lead or some point of safe contact where you can just have a conversation. It doesn't need to be deep psychology and talking about childhood trauma. Even a former pl- even a player just a- who's just who came through three years ago and go, you you know, what was good for you when you came through? Mm. What was not? What what was? Where did you struggle? What could have been? What could we imp- improved? Mm. Right. You're, we see you as a, a leader as well at such a young age. Can you take this lad or girl under the under your wing and bring them up? And that will just be passed on, won't it? That mm. culture of uh, support. Yeah, I really do. And it's such a simple mechanism of just buddying up and holding space and being that kind of space where you can speak freely without judgment, without being suppressed or told differently and and that's yeah i mean i don't think it needs to be more complex than that you know it's enabling that and then just to sort of zoom out from from the group and safety in any environment psychological safety is so important and we're moving now more out of this hierarchical approach to leading and managing teams where it's a top-down approach where i say something and everyone else leads and in rugby it's so top-down so you've got the coach got captain and then this finger points in there's no dialogue. So on a Monday morning, if you've messed up on the weekend, you're pretty nervous about going to that meeting. And that in mm-hmm. itself is traumatic because you're going to get shamed by your coach and 30 other people who are going to sit there and not stick up for you. Even though you're part even though you're part of a much bigger picture and your mistake is absolutely insignificant to the result. Absolutely insignificant because the culture is not built on the field. It's built in the weeks around it, in the years around it, in the ethics of the, the space in the club. And, you know, there's just some really simple ground rules that I think could be laid down, in, especially in rugby, would be, one, don't answer, don't name call. Speak from a place of respect. Speak from a place of listening and not to respond. And that in itself, and don't interrupt people. And I think that in itself, they're all basic communication skills but you'll create a space dialogue. So someone who doesn't talk much, it might be from a different country or they, you know, and they don't have that English dialogue. So you're, you're encouraging mass equal participation. And it sounds so simple. You know, they do all these complex things with different models and S&C models and performance models and data metrics. But 
fundamentally you've got human beings you need to achieve something and to in order to achieve something the they need to be communicating and it needs to be feeling safe happy mm. and healthy to then put their best into something and if if, if, if they haven't got that we're going to be fearful vigilant disconnected and dissociated so and i think maybe mm. you might feel that way coming out of sport as well because that's all you've experienced in you know if you're so in involved in sport for those years maybe you're coming out and you how do you interact with people you know this whole banter thing mm. you know what i mean yeah kind of eat how do i talk to people normally without taking the piss out of them mm. if, yeah and you, you know you don't build interpersonal skills you don't build that ability to really connect to someone on a very human level and we're wired for connection we're wired for deep connection and surface level banter name calling you know it doesn't work and and i'll just be open and that throughout worcester you know i was i was called a certain name because of my haircut you know and i can laugh about it now but when i was i was only a short back in size it wasn't anything drastic it wasn't like a mohican and what people are you know trying to wear now but that in itself at such a young age i had no identity so i was called by this specific name not my name that's not my name so then the coaches not all the coaches but a few coaches and this is what really annoyed me because the coaches started saying this and if anyone listens to this it might seem you might perceive this as not a big deal but it is a big deal because i was young and i wanted to make an impression in this environment so calling me by a name removes my identity my self-respect and your respect for me whether you think it's a joke or not so that was the one example of other players unfortunately receiving i would say worse quote-unquote things happen to them or you know shaming is the word i think we shame shame a lot yeah you want to highlight someone's someone's uh, small intricacies or small, I don't know, foibles, and you and it sticks, doesn't it? It sticks, and, and it, and it's very difficult to get rid of that. And if you show, if you uh, push back on it, and I'll fuck off, mm. and they'll carry, carry on doing it because it might wind you up. Yeah, and you and, and and you saw it, and it's completely true because if you did speak truth to power and you did say f off and you said get out of my way you know sometimes it would work sometimes it's like you know it's very an, an primal animalistic thing where you do step up to someone physically and, and confront them and that does dissolve it but why should we have to get to that point of even that point like it's so not necessary and it puts a slant on that slide you know of Rugby culture in general, you know, not just at the professional game, but I pl- I played at probably ten loan clubs, and you know there were a few cultures which I think got it right, and there was a nice feel about that. That you know we we played hard, we trained hard, but we were friends. You know, we were really good friends, and there was no shaming, and there was no, exactly, no yeah. belittling, and no putting down. This put down culture, I think, is you know at the root cause of dysregulation disruption in all groups in business groups and teams it's the subtleties it's the nuances it's the small interactions that make culture it's not 
the big mm-hmm. mission statement. You know, it's, it's how you treat people every single moment. And I think that's what the um, the really great teams in the world, in groups and musicians have got. They've got a sense of unity and respect and high skill and high collaboration. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's worth saying as well. Like rugby is a great sport. I loved it when I played it. I, I didn't really experience... Actually, in cricket, I found it more of a bullying culture um, than rugby. I don't know why that was. Um, but, you know, obviously these are your experiences. I don't want to, like, paint a picture of rugby in general. Being, maybe it's improved. I hope it has improved since you stopped playing, which was, I'm guessing, seven years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't want to... I, I hear you. Uh, but I don't want to also kind of people to listen to this who might be a player like yesterday, yesterday when I spoke to Jake Heenan at Bristol Bears. Yeah. I couldn't imagine him being that way. Just the most decent yeah. person, respectful, asking me questions about my life. I'm like, why are you asking me? I'm nobody. Yeah. You're, you played 100 times for Bristol. Yeah. You know, you're a great player, decent guys. So I hope that that culture isn't... Uh, there as much I hope it's been stamped out also I think there's a reason it's there and I think it's because those people with that uh, banter are struggling themselves and it, they're saying it so they don't get picked on that there's something there e. that they feel I need to assert my authority e. so I'm not I'm not going to get ridiculed maybe definitely and I think my experience is my experience it's not a generalization it's Again, just to kind of touch on, I moved into the game when it was just five years, I think, or so into the professional era. There's hardly anything. You know, there's so much back of the mm. back of the bus, bus hard. See, literally, that was like that. You know, all the senior players would be at the back of the bus. The young kids would be making tea. <laughs> like, it's, it was that mentality. So it's transitioned a lot. If you look at the England team now, most of them are in the age of 25. Younger players are better than older players. And that's taken a while for for it to come through so we're moving in better directions it also i guess is on a personal level i just wanted to disconnect myself from all things rugby for a long time so i have you know, this question comes up to you message you want to go back to it occasionally and you know I, I just give the same response mostly that you know it was the right time for me and i kind of had my experience in rugby and if, if i was to do it again or give advice i would you know i would really welcome speaking to younger players I think if it was ever if it was ever relevant and just to share my experience and you know maybe I will work in a rugby environment again one day who knows but I think it I think it's a bit wider than actually rugby I think it's it's a cultural epidemic and I think it's also when males specifically gather in groups because we are the most powerful people when we get together and it causes huge amounts of disruption and I think it's just Mm -hmm. being aware of the power males have in a group and it's just being able to just have a bit more containment around that. Okay, so let's change tack now. Let's talk about what you're doing in present day. Seems like from outside looking in, when I look at uh, what you do on LinkedIn and your website, this seems to be your kind of happy place. You, you seem really content. Tell us about what you do nowadays and uh, and what you offer with your company. Thank you, Craig. Hello really do feel like it is my happy place it's been it's been an extension of my passion in one-to-one work but also 
largely what I've spoken to is a reflection of that. And it's, I'm really passionate about creating spaces which are inclusive and they, they evoke positive change and impact through inclusivity. And my facilitation and people who I bring into the space, which is driven around well-being and high performance, it's really how do we can, can create a container for positive change, for growth, for individual and collective growth to happen. And so that's been such an underlying passion for me it's, as a subject I'm continually trying to improve and refine and just to really invite people into a space that I'm holding for them to feel like it's home that they can come they can be themselves they can try some new things there's no expectation there's no specific outcome that you have to perform in a certain way it's your experience and you take exactly what you need and if you don't if it doesn't land that's absolutely okay it's your experience it's giving people that space and freedom and so the evolution has been over the last couple of years, it's been moving into more group work and it's been based around how well-being meets high performance and how having a more insight into ourselves mentally and physically, that creates more space into our optimal levels of function and performance. So it's kind of marrying up these two worlds, one being around flow state, which is this state of optimal consciousness that we can be completely absorbed in the task and that we can focus wholly and we can be at our absolute best. But the conditions for that are quite um, specific and flow is a practice in a state is very energy costly. So it is a state we can't stay in for huge amounts of time, probably 90 minute cycles a couple of times a day. And to be able to perform at our best and access flow, which is this state of optimal function or, or the zone of optimal function, and we have to be able to restore and relax and replenish. And that's where mindfulness is the offset to flow. So mindfulness is a practice, flow is a state. So we use mindfulness to flush cortisol, to reset the nervous system, to then give us more opportunity to access flow whether that's in a, professional, uh, in, in a professional or personal setting. So I've tried, I've tried to combine, and I guess working in the corporate space, it's giving groups and individuals an experience of well-being and rest and replenishment and being able to leave your everyday environment, but also how through play, creativity, and this ability to really use our skills to the utmost to get into flow. And flow is yeah, exactly yeah. what we've, been in today is that there's almost an hour's past and time doesn't that the time reference doesn't marry up to that because I'm completely absorbed in this conversation so everything in my outside world's gone I'm really interested in what you said so just to re uh, repeat it the mindfulness you almost need to recharge like a battery to then be able to enable flow is that correct completely correct completely correct it's a very high energy cost state flows so lots of neurochemicals are released so dopamine adrenaline flood the system and if they over flood the system we can get overwhelmed if they under flood the system we we can start to procrastinate so in flow there's a area called the challenge skills ratio which basically says anything we do it has to be around five percent above our current ability if it's too hard 
we will get too overwhelmed. And if it's too easy, mm. we're not going to be stimulated enough. So understanding that requires self-reflection, clear goals, immediate feedback. There's there's specific characteristics. And once we get into flow like we have today, <laughs> like it's yeah. the best feeling for us because we also release lots of happy chemicals, so oxytocin and connection chemicals and serotonin and it's so it's a it's this cocktail of flow but it requires also um specific phases of recovery so there's like there's the stage of struggle which which gets you into flow and then you need a stage of recovery and then you go into flow and then you need another stage of replenishment so it's like almost on off on off it's just like a four-part cycle to the whole um experience of flow so mindfulness is a tool and a framework to basically flush stress out the system and to recover and that can be through time in nature uh, having to dedicate time to self and not on devices and having downtime journaling breath work movement cold water therapy social connection so these are all practices and tools that are now ever don't have to do all of them little little lego bricks can help i think and i think this is something i've tried to engineer more is that this is a completely personal personalized approach to health so this isn't a cookie cutter approach that you have to do your breath work in the morning and you have to journal in the, in the afternoon you take the you you take the concept of mindfulness and then you you kind of impart that into your day-to-day however you feels best for you and that might be go going for a walk in the morning without your phone and that might be your tick box you know and that might be your way of just finding a bit of space before you go into your day's activities and then realizing that you've done a couple of hours of work your mind's starting to be distracted you're not as focused as you were half an hour ago then you've probably reached that point of your peak you know and for some people doing deep work it can be 15 minutes to begin with and it's taken me a while I'm still trying to get better at deep work especially work which is work I'm not as naturally gifted that so it's it's being aware of that and your physiology is also going through more stress and input so you need you need recovery you need recovery and that doesn't have to be complex recovery it might be a walk in nature it might just be sometimes yourself talking to a close one on the phone or a practice of movement or breath work or something around that will give you that offset and so when did you because i know you've obviously been this isn't like you stopped playing rugby and gone i'm going to go straight into this start this company i know there's been this gradual uh learning and uh probably searching for what you are interested in doing but when did you decide okay this is uh the company i want to Repeat the where we can find you as well, the the website, so people can go and have a look. It's mindful-elements.co.uk. Okay, I'll put a link in the description as well. Thank you. So when did you decide, okay, this is I'm going to start this, and in what context is it with other people? Is it yourself? Uh, you, say, you say it's group work. Um, is it mainly for members of the public? Is it former athletes? It's been a mix the last couple of years so the my other the, the venture started about three or four years ago with a company called the human program which was a educational course for physios uh, personal trainers and therapists where 
I created a holistic course which involved someone who did gut health, sleep, mind health, performance, breath work. And these were all individual facilitators that, that came and we created this program called the Human Program. So that started, which was successful. We did a couple of courses and then through a business disruption with a partner, the business folded. And then over the last 18 months, I've zoomed out a little bit and I've moved back more into community work. So I've I've done a lot of community events, which aren't corporate events, which give people access to this experience. And I facilitate on these days, but I was I really co-facilitate. There's a group. And then over the last 12 months, we've moved into some children's work. So done some mindfulness days for children. And then we've started in the last 12 months doing more corporate and team events where teams have come to us for a day experience, either in Surrey we have a outdoor space or in London and they will take that we will take the team through a day of well-being and high performance and it's a day that they can just leave their everyday environment they can reconnect as a group Mm. and outside of the office uh, setting and how did you find your team to work with that must be a that must be an important area for you there must be a lot of trust there but also, um, it also must be nice to work with people who have similar interests and looking to offer something that is going to improve people physically, mentally, but also you're meeting people in your kind of uh, industry as well. It's been really nice. I've been, I'm very grateful and fortunate to have met some very exciting facilitators who are very passionate about their subjects and health. And, and, and the more I've kind of interacted with people in this space or sector or we're all working for the same purpose whether we're breathwork coaches or psychologists or business coaches or running podcasts i think we're all in our own way trying to share share our insights and work collaboratively with people and i think it's just a really beautiful space to be in and i am really fortunate to have a you know a really kind of great group to choose from so there's a there's a select people that can either deliver a sleep session or the hypnotherapist a business leadership coach and gut health so there's all these different people and components to kind of bring to light what really is ancient technology is ancient wisdom there's nothing new here you know we've been breathing in in the in eastern practices and philosophies this is nothing new in the west we are slower with the uptake and it was only really around uh, the year 2000 when the internet boomed that the age of information exploded that mindfulness became a thing so western science research took mindfulness seriously but it's only been for the last 20 odd years It's, it's, it's really not much in the west in the eastern philosophy thousands of years in the western approach we need we're more left-brained, so we like to see details and logic and data. So it's being supported now by, I think there's like a couple, a couple of thousand research papers on mindfulness. So that it's, a, it's, a, it's an ever-grown field, but it's still quite new, even though it's old. So it's kind of... I mean, there's a parallel with rugby. You're talking about rugby mm. and mindfulness at the same time here, you know. How you know is that being merged for full uh, potential? You know, and I think that's definitely something for athletes in general. And I know there's sometimes I wonder the whole mindfulness thing for athletes is it just mm. ticking a box? But there's no doubt that I've never heard anyone say oh, I just did some mindfulness and I'm really feel awful now. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. 
Completely. And, it, you know, it's there's a stigma around everything because we're so culturally conditioned to think about things which aren't actually through our thought process they've been given to us by society our peers friends school teachers for our life to think in a certain way about a certain subject and that in itself is detrimental to so many things but especially mindfulness because it can be perceived as very esoteric you know you have to be sat up straight in the in the kind of most optimal position to do your meditation and you're very zen all the time but we're all human beings we're all faced with emotions and challenges and mindfulness is a survival toolbox it's a strategy to really offset a modern world which is very stimulated and requires balance essentially Mm. and i think you can reframe it for athletes as nervous system regulation or you can use more scientific semantics to try and lure them in it's just it's, it's it's essentially the same thing we're taking space we're trying to regulate the system and then what comes from that is better performance, better relationships, better health. And why wouldn't you want that? Like it's really... Um, that, that leads me on to my next question is, you, know, you started, uh, are you the founder, are you co-founder of the company? Is it a joint I'm the, venture? I'm the founder of this final rebrand and reconstruction of my idea. But up until that point, I was a co-founder. And then I had a few directors and... I've now decided in the last six months to just do it, try and get it go on my own. So huge, huge amounts of learnings for me personally in the last couple of years trying to start a business as a startup. And yes, I've 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 had to learn some really tough lessons, and mindfulness and the practice has really helped me move through those. In a it's exactly different... what I was going to ask you. Yeah, you know, were you able to practice what you preach? Starting a company is a very difficult process. Yeah, were you able to uh, utilize what you've been trying to teach other people to dis- be disciplined with your own mindfulness? Mm. Largely speaking, yes, but not completely yes as well. Like there was so many times where, you know, even being involved in a well-being space, like you can be over-consumed with noise and stress and all these habitual things come up, you know, when but when we get frightened and fearful, we usually go back into our childhood self. And for me, that was maybe around rugby and those experiences that I was not speaking my true self and suppressing things. So especially with the change in directorship of the business as I've had, there were lots of examples where I wasn't able to speak, I feel, from that place. So the practices have been a lifesaver in terms of regulating myself, but they're still much more work to do for me personally on a development process point and to because this is a practice and practice is important because it's not a done thing we don't become mindful and that's it sure. because because that's that's the e, that's the ego um because in spirituality they call it spiritual bypassing where you will basically consume all this information and regurgitate it and not embody it so then you become more even more disconnected from your true self so it's a practice for me every day and I think the more I've gone through this is the more I have to try to keep it more simple so just taking more time for myself in the day in the, the mornings for me are like the if, if, if my mornings are good my day is great so if I get yeah oh, do you know what that's so you know that rings true for me yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in what you offer about the play aspect as well can you talk a little bit about the play side of it 
for me to speak back to you, it's an on- ongoing process for me. And, you know, I think for all of us to try and build a practice around mindfulness and, but also play and speaking to play and play has been such a massive part of my own curiosity. And I think it goes back to when I was younger, when I was involved in different activities, which weren't rule based, which really, which really the driver is your innate intuition. You know, you, you're not being told what to do. Watch children move, as you know, watch children play, and they'll move in ways that are, which are self-exploratory. They're not rule-based. They're not time-bound. And they are in flow the whole time. They're present. They're tinkering with their environment. And they're just playing with their environment. They're figuring things out. They're problem-solving from a... Brain, but without knowing it, without knowing it, but that, but and adults, we've lost that ability to play, and all these kind of primary flow activities, whether that is art, music, dance, time in nature, physical movements, these are all things we done as children, and then when we get to a certain age, we get we, we get told to sit down, and then we get told to be quiet, then we get told these are subjects you should learn. So then it removes all of that intuition. We become very passive to our environment. So play really on a physical or mental level is a way that we can recreate childhood experiences in, a, in, a, in an adult body, which then completely remap, I believe, our perspective on life because we don't look in linear right angles. We start to look in more abstract ways and more pers- and wider perspective, which is really not driven into us in a culture or an educational curriculum which is very regimented and it's very rule-based so play as an adult is a great way to basically offshoot a lot of this um let's start to wrap it up Mm. a little bit so what what you do your company it seems like this is your um your happy happy place that you are is other other things that inspire you and what, what what keeps you happy whether it's you know away from work what do you do to kind of you seem like quite a creative person. Is there something you do outside that keeps you kind of on the on the path of mm. where you want to be heading? I'm massively into music and I have been pretty much all my life. So music, DJ, and I've DJed for over 10 years. Um, my partner's a music producer. She also loves electronic music, mm. play instruments, drums, hanging pans, started sketching more this year that's been so fun just doing more artwork and i think i've really valued that and 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 i think with going back to you know do i embody things as much as I have, that's one thing it's a non-negotiable is you know it's doing something in my day that i could feel like i can just be completely present with i'm a bit of a beginner in something where i'm trying to learn the hang pan or i'm trying to learn how to sketch a bit differently and i, and I just love that process of just being creative and going back into parts of myself and at school a lot was about rugby and I remember distinctly and this is common for a lot of us that we were told that we weren't good at a subject and or you know we were graded differently so all that for me is like putting that to the side and it's like right let's give something go as an adult and I just find it so rewarding I find it so interesting the whole process and how we learn so well as human beings when we give the conditions for it we don't judge ourselves we don't say, oh, that was not good practice or that wasn't as good art diagram that I'm trying to copy off from something. It's just the process of it. And then over time, it's amazing. I mean, I'm no expert at art or playing the hangpang, but it's just 
it's amazing to see what we can do when we just let go of that expectation on ourselves. Have you heard of um, Rick Rubin's book? I've heard of Rick Rubin and I've not read the book. The Creative Act, I would really mm. recommend it. And it's all about how he perceives creativity. Is there any books that you have read recently that you were kind of, that, that not you enjoyed, but you felt I've improved myself or I could learn from recently? It's a good question. <laughs> I'm not sure if you can see my my shelf, but the pretty the pretty four on the other side as well. And I've just I've been absolutely book mad to be honest over the last couple of years. And I've just when I've started to go into these subjects, I find it so interesting, and I just find people's perspectives so interesting on their experience with the people like Rick Rubin. And there's so much that we can experience. And I think I saw somewhere like when we read a blog, it's basically someone's research and experience of like a couple of months if you read like a slightly longer document that could be up to a year when you read a book you're essentially downloading 15 10 years of experience it's amazing mm. i just don't know that it's like a book might take you a month it's when how fast you read maybe less maybe more but you're getting 15 years of knowledge and insight into one book i'm like what what is amazing like yeah it's just so I just think there's so, so much at our fingertips. Yeah, and, and I think whatever, however we consume that, so whether whether it's auditory through audiobooks or reading, and I think actually reading is really good for us. But again, if you can just read 10 pages and you want to do the rest of the audiobook, great. You, you, you're still downloading all this rich information. And I'm just looking around and I think, what are the, what are the instrumental books that I started with? It was a book by Matt Hay. And it's called Notes on a Nervous Planet. And I think that was one of the, the first books that I read. And I think that was the insight into just understanding a little bit more around the current conditions of the modern day world and how as human beings we've we've not de-evolved, but we've definitely evolved in technology and different things, but we're still trying to really find ourselves in this kind of world. So that that was a really great book and just think just off the top of my head just in terms of i think really good people to lean into so eckhart toll in terms of more spiritual context um peter levine who talks a lot around the human animal and the nervous system and how we store a lot of that energy is like compressed energy and how we can discharge that healthily i think it's a really good insight um joe dispenser more consciousness, understanding thoughts and feelings. And then flow, I've taken a lot of inspiration from Mihai Chitsun Mihai, which is a Australian physicist who did one of the biggest studies on flow. So that his book is great. He's called Flow and a guy called Stephen Kotler, who's got a more up-to-date version in America, who has the, the flow research project. So so many resources um look at it ballet brown also great yeah and i think in that as well i think the one thing i've learned is yeah you can we, we can consume all this information but i think the the important thing if there is an important thing out of all of this it's the embodiment process you know and it's like how do you take some of these learnings and integrate and i think that is the that is the practice it's, you know, taking these wisdom keepers and all this information that's been passed down for generations into a tangible space 
for you and others sure. in the world around you. Um, so yeah, big fan of books. <laughs> really am. Um, yeah, big fan. They've, they've been so inspirational for me personally. That was Ollie Frost. Thanks so much to Ollie for his time. You can find all of the information to find Ollie in the episode notes, his website and his social media tags. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please subscribe and we'll be back for a new episode next Wednesday.